The Sutton-Taylor feud came about in post-Civil War Texas during the early days of Reconstruction. On one side, you had the Taylor clan, led by Patriarchs Creed and little brother Pitkin Taylor. Their people first came to Texas in the 1820s and settled about 100 miles south of Austin in what's now DeWitt County. Both Creed and Pitkin would see action during the war with Mexico as well as serving with the Texas Rangers under famed Captain John Coffey Hayes. And years later, they, along with several members of their extended family, would also enlist with the Confederate Army. Say what you will about the Taylors of DeWitt County, but they were most definitely a fighting stock. Hell, truth be told, even after Lee's surrender and the official end of the Civil War, many of them continued to fight. Like I said, this was during Reconstruction, and I guess they didn't much like their home turf being overrun by Yankees. Remember, Texas was never successfully invaded during the Civil War, at least not really. Sure, there was a Union blockade in the Gulf, and Galveston was occupied for a time, but by the war's end, only El Paso and Brazos Island remained under federal control. This all changed in May of 1865 when U.S. troops began entering the state unopposed. What followed in the eyes of many, including the Taylors of DeWitt County, was akin to a foreign occupation. Couple that with an economic depression, fell in crops, a drought, and I'm sure a whole hell of a lot of PTSD, and Texas was primed for some good old-fashioned feuding. Now, how much of this fighting was due to the Taylors being hounded by carpetbaggers versus their own dubious stock-gathering practices is up for debate. That said, here's what we do know. At least two U.S. soldiers would fall to Taylor guns in the year 1866, one killed at a dance in DeWitt County by Buck Taylor and another by Creed's son Hayes in an Indianola saloon. The following year, Hayes, along with brother Doughboy, would kill two additional federal troops up in Mason County. Be that as it may, the real genesis of the feud seems to have occurred on Christmas Eve, 1868, with the death of the aforementioned Buck Taylor and his cousin, Richard Chisholm. The pair were celebrating in the now ghost town of Clinton when they got into an argument with a DeWitt County Sheriff's deputy by the name of William Sutton. The dispute grew heated, men went for their guns, and when the smoke cleared, Buck and Richard lay dead on the ground. And this was not the first time that Sutton had spilled Taylor blood. A few months prior, he had gunned down Charlie Taylor while attempted to make an arrest for horse theft. Or, more accurately put, Charlie was in the process of air quotes escaping, wink wink, when Bill shot him dead. In addition to being a rancher and lawman, Bill Sutton, like many of the Taylors, was also a former Confederate. And fun fact, he was the only person with the last name of Sutton involved in the Sutton-Taylor feud. Just thought I'd point that out. Rather than a true family feud like, say, the Hatfields and McCoys, the upcoming trouble there in DeWitt County was more of a war between rival factions. Now, in March of 1870, President Grant signed an act readmitting Texas to the Union. That summer, the dreaded Freedmen's Bureau would cease operating, and Governor Edmund Davis would authorize the formation of the Texas State Police. Keep in mind that at this point, the Texas Rangers were a non-entity. They had been disbanded following the end of the Civil War. With the Freedmen's Bureau on the way out and the military stretched thin, the only real law available in Texas was of the local variety town marshals, county sheriffs, and the like. That's where the Texas State Police came into play. Much like the Rangers before them, they had no jurisdiction and could make arrests throughout the entire state. Within just a month, the state police made 978 arrests, and by 1872, they had taken nearly 7,000 criminals into custody. 
most of whom were charged with either murder or attempted murder. Still, though, as effective as they may have been, the state police remained unpopular. First of all, they were controlled by Governor Davis, a man who was considered by many to be a radical. Secondly, and this is a big one, the governor's hounds, as they were often called, also employed quite a few former slaves as deputies. And as you can imagine, that didn't sit too well with many white Texans. As one Taylor descendant put it in an old History Channel documentary from the late 1990s, the slaves were now the masters. Now, as with any group of law enforcement, you had both good and bad officers. Unfortunately, one of the worst of the state police, a Confederate deserter by the name of Jack Helm, would eventually find himself stationed right there in DeWitt County. Following the war, Helm organized a gang of vigilantes in Goliad County before being appointed as a special officer with express orders of subduing the so-called Taylor Gang. So it were in August 1869 that Helm and his men gunned down Hayes Taylor. And Hayes wasn't the only one. Rumor has it that Jack Helm was bringing in more men dead than he was alive. And just like Bill Sutton, Helm had a bad habit of gunning down prisoners as they air quotes escaped. Speaking of Sutton, both he and Jack Helm would be sworn in to the Texas State Police in 1870, with Helm as a captain. Only problem was Jack was crookeder in hell and ended up getting fired for embezzling a large sum of money. This indiscretion aside, and much to the chagrin of the Taylors, Helm would still somehow get himself elected as sheriff of DeWitt County. Joining him and Sutton in positions of leadership were James W. Cox and Captain Joe Tomlinson. Now, the Kentucky-born Jim Cox was also a Texas state policeman there in DeWitt County, but much like Jack Helm, he would get the axe sometime in 1871. Although Cox resided in Texas for quite some time, he had absolutely no qualms siding with Reconstruction authorities. Captain Joe Tomlinson, on the other hand, was a curious case. I don't think anyone to this day knows why old Joe aligned himself with the Sutton faction. After all, he had not only served with Creed Taylor during the Texas Revolution, but he was even married to the man's sister. And one of Creed's brothers, William, was married to Joe's sister. The now-deceased Buck Taylor, and many of these other Taylors we'll be discussing here shortly, were Tumlinson's nephews by marriage. Now officially, on paper at least, the Sutton faction was attempting to rein in the crime being committed by the Taylors, who in turn felt like they was in the right. I mean, sure, they and their allies occasionally stole cattle and horses, but those animals belonged to the Union sympathizers. And the Yankees that the Taylors killed were their opponents in a war they did not yet recognize as being over. The inner law of the Taylor clan trumped any legal entity, especially the damn carpetbaggers with the Texas State Police. According to Texas Ranger T.C. Robinson, quote, The people of both factions were accustomed to righting their own wrongs and they object decidedly to any interference, even should that interference be lawful. Ranger Robinson would also state that, at that time in DeWitt County, revolver cylinders were what passed for children's rattles, that the kids were given empty cartridge cases as teething rings, they were weaned on gunpowder and brandy, and learned how to shoot before they could talk. Now, like I mentioned earlier, even though the Suttons had the law on their side, they weren't above a little old-fashioned cold-blooded murder. As such, the killing of prisoners would only increase. Case in point, in August 1870, Jack Helm and Bill Sutton, in their official capacity as Texas State Police, gunned down Taylor in-laws Henry and William Kelly. According to a witness, the Kellys surrendered without putting up a fight before being taken into a thicket and executed. 
For the most part, this is exactly the type of justice that the Sutton faction was dealing out. That said, you'd be mistaken to think that a fighting bunch like the Taylors were just going to take it laying down. Pitkin Taylor, who at 48 years of age was the clan's acknowledged leader, as far as the feud was concerned, vowed revenge. When Bill Sutton got wind of such bold talk, he and a few others lured Pitkin out to a field one night and filled him full of lead. At the funeral that followed, Pitkin's son Jim Taylor swore that he would wash his hands in the blood of Bill Sutton, a goal that was nearly accomplished the following month when Jim's brother Scrap shattered Sutton's arm with a blast from a shotgun. And on and on it went. To make matters worse, the Texas State Police were abolished in 1873, and the Texas Rangers wouldn't be reinstated until the following year. This meant that there was a good stretch of time there where the only lawmen available were locals. And unfortunately, in the case of DeWitt County, that meant the nefarious Sheriff Jack Helm and his deputy, Bill Sutton. Now, when all this was just getting started, John Wesley Harden wasn't even in the area. Remember, he spent a good portion of 1871 driving cattle up to Kansas and gambling in Abilene. Skip ahead to the summer of 72, he shot several times and arrested and forced to do stints behind bars both in Rusk and Austin. Nonetheless, once Hardin finally returned home to Gonzales, it didn't take him too long to fall in with the Taylors. By the way, John Wesley was not related to these Taylors of DeWitt County. Although Hardin's brother Jeff would eventually marry one of the Taylor gals, that union did not occur until years later when the feud was long over. Wes's relationship with the Taylors was simply one of friendship. They, just like him, were unreconstructed rebels at heart, maybe a little on the wild side, and most definitely opposed to the damn Yankees and everything they stood for. Now, according to Hardin, he had a chance encounter with Sheriff Jack Helm just outside the town of Cuero. The two sized each other up, but when Hardin realized who Helm was, he refused to shake his hand, saying instead, quote, We are man-to-man and face-to-face on equal terms. You have said that I was a murderer and a coward and have had your deputies after me. Now arrest me if you can. I dare you to try. Helm got nervous as all get out and began pleading with Hardin, begging for his life, but the young killer was unmoved, telling the sheriff, You are armed. Defend yourself. You have been going around killing men long enough and I know you belong to a legalized band of murdering cowards who have hung and murdered better men than yourself. Prudently, Helm refused to go for his gun and instead tried a different angle, telling Wes that he was too brave of a man to shoot and inviting him to join up with he and his vigilantes. Hardin declined, saying that the people that Helm was at war with, the Taylors, were his friends. At least that's the way that John Wesley said that it all went down. Truth is, I seriously doubt any such encounter ever occurred. And if it did, it certainly wasn't the way that Hardin described. If you'll recall, back in May of 1872, West paid a mysterious visit down to King Ranch, supposedly for business. Believe me when I say this weren't no small thing. Richard King was the largest cattleman in Texas at this time, and his spread was more of an empire than a mere ranch. And although nobody can say for sure... It's thought that King, a supposed Sutton sympathizer, arranged a secret meeting in his place between Hardin and Sutton faction leader Jim Cox. The idea was to recruit Wes over to their side, or at very least persuade him to remain neutral. Maybe. Like I said, this is just a theory. Albeit a very likely theory. Whatever happened, Hardin and Cox traveled together for a spell after departing. A curious development considering Wes's hatred of the state police. 
Now, this was in the spring of 1872, before Hardin got into all that trouble over in Hemp Hill and found himself locked up in jail. Once he escaped, he would meet up with Jim Cox yet again, nearly a year later and this time on the Cox Ranch, just a few weeks after that initial run-in with Sheriff Helm that I described a minute ago. And Helm was in attendance for this meeting. Matter of fact, he even promised Hardin that he'd do whatever he could to make his legal problems go away. You know, as long as you join us in fighting the Taylors. The most that Hardin would agree to, though, at that time was neutrality. Shortly thereafter, I couldn't find the exact date, but Hardin was down in Cuero gambling when, oddly enough, a local J.B. Morgan demanded that Wes buy him a bottle of champagne. Hardin refused, and Morgan grew hostile. One thing led to another, and the two stepped outside. Morgan went for his gun, but only got it about halfway out his pocket before Wes put a bullet just above his left eye. Now say it with me, class. That's Hardin's version. A Texas Ranger would later state that Morgan died simply for taking his hands out of his pocket after Hardin told him not to. For what it's worth, a newspaper would report that the killing was believed to be justifiable and that Morgan was the aggressor. Also, and I do think this is a little important, at least one source claimed that Morgan was one of Jack Helm's deputies. So yeah, if that's true, I guess you could say that Hardin was letting the Sutton faction know that he had finally made up his mind. And if he hadn't, he damn sure would a week later when Helm led a posse of over 50 men to the home of his father-in-law. According to West, quote, About the 23rd of April, 1873, Jack Helm and 50 men came into our neighborhood and inquired for Manning, George, and myself. They insulted the women folks, and Jack Helm was particularly insulting to my wife. End quote. So there you have it. If Hardin was truly harboring any thoughts of remaining neutral, Helm's insulting manner sealed the deal. In a matter of days, Wes, along with a few of his Clements cousins, met up with the Taylors and agreed to officially join forces. Quote, I met Jim, John, and Scrap Taylor, while Manning Clements, George Tennille, and myself represented our side of the house. It was there agreed to fight the mob law to the bitter end, as our lives and families were in danger. End quote. And you better believe they hit the ground running. Just a week or two later, the Taylor faction caught up with Jim Cox and a friend of his by the name of Jake Chrisman. Shot him both full of buckshot and cut Cox's throat ear to ear. Hardin, in his autobiography, would state, I have never pleaded to that case, so I will at this time have little to say. Except that Jim Cox and Jake Chrisman met their death from the Taylor party around the 15th of May, 1873. End quote. Okay, kind of a weird wording there on Wes's part, almost like he didn't want to implicate himself years after the fact. I mean, if he wasn't involved with Cox's death, then why not just say so instead of dancing around the matter? That said, Hardin would most certainly take part in the killing of Sheriff Jack Helm just two days later. Now, the good sheriff, in addition to being a stalwart member of law enforcement, was also a bit of a tinkerer on the side. And on the day in question, he was piddling around a blacksmith shop at the town of Albuquerque, Texas, unarmed, when Wes and Jim Taylor caught up with him. Once Helm spotted Taylor, he pulled out a knife, hollered for him to put his hands up, and began to advance. But you know the old saying, right? Never bring a knife to a gunfight. Both Hardin and Taylor opened up fire at the same time, and per Hardin, quote, Thus did the leader of the Vigilant Committee, the Sheriff of DeWitt, the terror of the country, whose name was a horror to all law-abiding citizens, meet his death. 
The news soon spread that I'd killed Jack Helm, and I received many letters of thanks from the widows of men whom he had cruelly put to death. Many of the best citizens of Gonzales and DeWitt counties patted me on the back and told me that that was the best act of my life. End quote. Probably goes without saying at this point, but what I just recounted was Hardin's romanticized and self-aggrandizing version of events. In all actuality, according to eyewitnesses, Jim Taylor walked up behind the sheriff and attempted to shoot him in the back. The gun misfired and Helm spun around just in time for Jim to recover and put a round straight into his chest. This was followed by Hardin opening up with a shotgun. Miraculously, Helm still wasn't dead, so Jim Taylor stepped in close and shot the sheriff several more times in the head. About a month later, the Taylors, along with John Wesley Hardin, would attack the spread old Joe Tomlinson. Rumor had it that a force of around 50 armed men were mobilizing at Joe's place, so I guess the Taylors figured they could go ahead and strike preemptively. Despite the makings of a large-scale battle, things soon devolved into a siege as Tomlinson's men took refuge within the ranch. There were no casualties on either side, but for at least a couple of days, couldn't nobody get in or out of old Joe's place. Finally, a sheriff's deputy named Blair arrived with a sizable force of armed civilians to help mediate the situation. It was agreed upon that both parties, the Taylors and the Suttons, would ride to the nearby town of Clinton and hash things out peacefully. And believe it or not, once in town, a treaty was drafted, quote, for the purpose of promoting peace and order and quiet in this community, end quote. And those who signed pledged to abstain from any future hostile acts. Forty-two men in total from both sides, including Jim Taylor, Joe Tomlinson, John Wesley Hardin, and the Clements brothers, all made their mark and agreed to peace. And yeah, for at least a little while, there was no more killing, although there may have possibly been an attempt on Hardin's life. Apparently, he downed a cold beer one day and soon doubled over in pain. Unbeknownst to Wes, either by accident or design, the beer was full of ground-up little pieces of glass. Not a fun time, to say the least, and a paper out of Austin even reported that Hardin was not expected to live. But as we've already demonstrated, Wes was nothing if not tough, and he would eventually pull through. Right about the time that Wes was recovering, in late December of 1873, the truce was violated when Taylor ally Willie Prigdon got himself gunned down by the Sutton faction. Supposedly, this killing stemmed from a gambling dispute and not a direct result of the feud, but nonetheless, according to Hardin, war stirred up between the two parties again. Both factions would descend upon Cuero, over 100 armed men on each side, as frightened townsfolk abandoned their homes and ran for cover. Thankfully, calmer heads prevailed and yet another peace treaty was signed this one dubbed the Treaty of Cuero. All total, 86 men signed their names, but this time John Wesley Hardin wasn't one of them. Neither was Bill Sutton or Jim Taylor. Now keep in mind that throughout all this violence, participants on both sides still had to somehow manage to feed their families. While Hardin made a good deal of his money at the poker table, he had also gone through the trouble of registering a brand, the J.H., with this veil of legitimacy, West would begin to drive mavericks of dubious origin two or three counties away where buyers weren't overly particular. And lest anyone get to asking questions, Hardin even had his brother Joe draft up phony bills to sell. Now, Joe Hardin was an interesting guy. He was West's older brother by three years and most definitely the white sheep of the family. Not only was Joe a lawyer, but he also served as the district clerk over in the town of Comanche, as well as the dam postmaster and county treasurer. 
prestigious positions that allowed Joe to support his aging parents, along with the remaining siblings still at home. All that said, Joe Harden was also a crook of the highest order and was making money hand over fist selling land with bogus titles, titles that he himself would draft up, which is how he got to supplying little brother Wes with all them fraudulent bills to sell. And eventually, Joe would even stoop so low as to assist his brother in committing murder. Remember, neither Jim Taylor nor Wes Harden signed that latest peace treaty, and they damn sure hadn't forgotten about Bill Sutton. Per Harden, quote, We had often tried to catch him, Sutton, but he was so wily that he always eluded us. I even made futile efforts to get him myself. I had even gone down to his home in Victoria, but did not get him, end quote. The time would finally come in March 1874. Sutton's men were trailing a herd north as Bill prepared to take the much easier route of selling from Indianola to New Orleans and then taking a train from the Big Easy on up to Kansas. Joining him were his pregnant wife Laura and an employee by the name of Gabe Slaughter. And the reason that Hardin and the Taylor faction knew all of this was thanks to Wes's crooked older brother Joe. He had ridden in, per Hardin's request, and made Bill Sutton's acquaintance, under an alias, of course. As soon as Sutton confided that he'd be taking a steamer to New Orleans, Joe passed said information on to little brother Wes. Not long after, on March 11, 1874, just as Bill Sutton, his wife, and Gabe Slaughter were boarding that ship, Jim and Bill Taylor stepped from the shadows, guns ablazing. Within moments, Sutton and Slaughter lay dead as poor Laura screamed in terror. Five months later, she'd give birth to a daughter, Willie Slaughter Sutton, named in honor of the two dead men. Now, following this killing, Wes began spending more and more time some 200 miles to the north in Comanche, where Brother Joe and his parents were residing. As such, he would attend a festival there on May 26, 1874, which, as it turns out, was also his 21st birthday. And, well, let's just say that Hardin got a little too festive. Matter of fact, Wes was so visibly inebriated that even Jim Taylor began to get nervous. And apparently Taylor wasn't the only one. John Carnes, the sheriff of Comanche County, began to practically beg with Wes to go on home and sleep it off. And he may have too, had it not been for the sudden arrival of a deputy out of neighboring Brown County by the name of Charles Webb. Now Webb was no stranger to John Wesley Harden. The two had met previously and Hardin told him in no uncertain terms to stay the hell out of Comanche County. A little while later, Webb was tasked with investigating what was then known as the Hardin Gang and their various misdeeds in Brown County, and by late May of 74, had already arrested two of Wes's buddies for stealing cattle. That said, Deputy Webb had zero jurisdiction there in Comanche, and he likely wasn't even aware of Hardin's presence. He was just there for the festival like everybody else. Couldn't tell that to Wes, though. In his drunken state, I guess maybe he figured that Webb was looking to either take him out or, at very least, place him under arrest. As such, Hardin immediately went on the offense, asking the Brown County deputy if he had any papers on him. Webb replied that he did not, but West just kept on pushing. Finally, Hardin asked the deputy what he had behind his back, and Webb produced a cigar, causing West to somewhat let his guard down. Hardin then suggested that the men head inside the saloon for a drink, and the deputy agreed. Okay, cool. Crisis averted, right? Well, not so fast. Hardin turned his head for just a moment before one of his buddies hollered for him to look out. Quote, As I turned around, I saw Charles Webb drawing his pistol. He was in the act of presenting it when I jumped to one side, 
drew my pistol, and fired. In the meantime, Webb had fired, hitting me in the left side, cutting the length of it, inflicting an ugly and painful wound. My aim was good, and a bullet hole in the left cheek did the work. He fell against the wall, and as he fell, he fired a second shot, which went into the air, end quote. By this time, Harden allies Jim Taylor and Bud Dixon had also gotten in on the action, shooting numerous rounds into the deputy's already dead body. Those of you paying attention at home can probably guess what I'm about to say next. Everything you just heard, come on, you already know, was Harden's version of events. As it turns out, the newspapers reported a slightly different story. According to the Dallas Weekly Herald, Webb was simply minding his own business in a saloon there in Comanche when Hardin and several others stepped inside. They began antagonizing the lawman, pairing off two in the front and another two at his side, but the deputy figured out what was happening and made a run for it. West and his companions followed, and once again, they attempted to box Webb in on the street. And seeing them go for their guns, Deputy Webb did the same. If this is true, and I tend to believe that it is, then Webb certainly died game. Four against one, and he still managed to get a shot off and wound the deadliest gunman that Texas had ever produced. Now, prior to this killing, Hardin had mostly been able to do as he pleased there in Comanche. Hell, even the sheriff, John Carnes, and his deputies stood by as West gunned Webb down. Even though they had warrants on Hardin, they refused to serve him. Then, as an angry mob began to form, Sheriff Carnes and his men protected Hardin and made sure he was able to get out of town alive. Per Leon Metz, quote, As Carnes struggled with the crowd, Hardin and his friends slipped out a side door. Hardin slashed a couple of hitching ropes and the gunmen galloped away on horses they did not own. Glancing back, Hardin saw his wife Jane and his 17-year-old sister Maddie weeping in the crowd. From down the street, Hardin's father and brother left Joe's law office on the square and with shotguns hurried up the dusty road toward the saloon, end quote. West may have escaped the mob, but the good citizens of Comanche County were, by this point, absolutely done with his shit. They petitioned the governor, and within just one day, an entire company of Texas Rangers arrived under the leadership of Captain John R. Waller. Remember, the Texas Rangers had been decommissioned following the end of the Civil War. Texas State Police were acting as quasi-rangers for a few years, but they too were disbanded in April 73. It wasn't for nearly another year until the Texas legislator authorized two battalions of Texas Rangers, just in time to be dispatched to Comanche County. And what followed was one of the greatest manhunts in Texas history. By May 30th, just four days after Deputy Webb's death, Hardin and Jim Taylor began swapping bullets with the Texas Rangers both vowing to die together rather than surrender. A few days later, they clashed again, a desperate fight in the rain that saw West and seven others charge some 40-odd rangers. Hardin had his pony shot out from under him, but still managed to slip away. Meanwhile, West's cousins and partners in crime, Ham Anderson and Alec Berkman, weren't so lucky. The rangers caught up with them on June 1st and shot them both dead. Next to go would be Hardin's older brother, Joseph. Back in Comanche, the Texas Rangers had placed Joe and his wife, along with Reverend Hardin, Wes's sister Maddie, and several others behind bars. I guess the idea was to stop them from spying on behalf of, or otherwise aiding, John Wesley. Well, before you know it, here comes a mob, overtaking and disarming the guards. In no time flat, they took Joe Hardin, along with Tom and Bud Dixon, and strung him up from a nearby live oak tree. 
Now, out there hiding out in the brush and dodging bullets like he was, Wes wouldn't hear about this for a few days, but as soon as he got word, he made a beeline for Comanche. His first stop was at his parents' house, but the reverend, either out of fear or frustration, refused to embrace his son, instead telling Wes to get gone before he put himself and everybody else in further jeopardy. Hardin would later write that although his desire for revenge was not satisfied, he nonetheless decided to leave and let things cool down a bit. If it had not been for my father and the women and children, I would not have left. But Waller, the ranger captain, had said that if I was seen in the country that he would kill my father and my little brother Jeff and wind up on the women and children. On his way back to Gonzales, a posse was in close pursuit, so Wes forded up at the Nick's farm. Ended up firing several times through a window and left at least one of the men dead on the ground before making his getaway. Now, in Wes's absence, the Texas Rangers arrested several more of his companions, seven of whom had been transferred down to DeWitt County, where, as it turns out, the sudden feud was still alive and well. As such, on the night of June 21st, 1874, a sudden mob descended upon the jail and lynched three of the prisoners, including Scrap Taylor. Old Captain Joe Tomlinson ended up dying without his boots on, of natural causes, in November of 74, and Reuben Brown, the new leader of the Sutton faction, was shot dead a year later. Finally, on December 27, 1875, it was Jim Taylor's turn. As he and two of his buddies were paying a visit to Clinton, Texas, they went down in a hell of bullets. There was some sporadic violence following Jim's death, but for all intents and purposes, the Sutton-Taylor feud was finally over. Of course, by that time, John Wesley Harden had fled the state entirely. In the early fall, 1874, he sent his wife and daughter on a boat bound for New Orleans as he made his way over land via horseback. From there, they would travel east to Florida before settling down in Gainesville, where Harden began going by the alias of John H. Swain. Swain being the last name of some of his wife's kinfolk. I feel like I should point out that John Wesley Harden is still just 21 years old. The man had been engaged in near constant violence since he was 15. Trailed herds north to Kansas, spent time in the wild cow town of Abilene, received numerous gunshot wounds, killed dozens of men, and participated in one of the most notorious feuds of the Old West, all before his 22nd birthday. That is insane to think about. Once established in Gainesville, Harden, a.k.a. John Swain, purchased a saloon and, believe it or not, even got deputized by the town marshal. Now, this was a temporary position. Apparently, the marshal just needed Wes's help in apprehending some black guys who were resisting arrest. Shortly thereafter, another black man by the name of Eli was taken into custody for allegedly attempting to rape a white woman. On the night of the arrest, Harden helped a lynch mob and burn into jail down with a still-breathing Eli trapped inside. If this story is true, I do find it interesting. By all accounts, John Wesley both hated and feared the power of the mob. Not only had vigilantes came after him on numerous occasions, but his own brother and several of his friends had also fallen prey to mob justice. Yet here he was in Florida making no qualms about becoming a vigilante himself and murdering a man without due process. Just something to think about. In early 1875, Wes sold the saloon and moved his family to the nearby town of McCanopy. But I guess when you're a wanted man, it's hard to put down roots. They'd move again and spend about a year in Jacksonville, where Hardin got into the butchering business. Steers, not men. It's also where his son was born, John Wesley Hardin Jr. 
Now, I failed to mention this prior, but back in Texas, John and wife Jane had also welcomed a daughter into the world, their firstborn, Mary Elizabeth, back in February of 1873. So John Jr. was kiddo number two. By this time, the price on Harden's head had grown to a whopping $4,000, the equivalent of $115,000 in today's money. More than enough to entice the Pinkertons into nosing around, two of whom West claimed to have killed not far from the Florida-Georgia line. Harden contemplated fleeing to Mexico, but in the end, he settled for Alabama. Pollard, Alabama, to be exact. Dude just couldn't stay out of trouble, though. He and a new friend went gambling in Mobile, where, according to Harden, he would kill yet again. Never his fault, mind you. Poor guy just always accidentally finds himself in horrible situations where he has no choice but to shed blood in defense of his life. And apparently, this fight in Mobile started over politics. Imagine that. A big brawl erupted in the street with Harden right in the middle, and it wasn't long before the law showed up and began firing into the crowd. According to Wes, he and his partner killed two police officers before tossing their guns. They were arrested, but without any hard proof, the authorities had no choice but to let them go. Much like the incident with the Pinkertons, I'm not sure how true this is. Harden did get arrested. There's an article from the May 3, 1877 edition of the Mobile Register stating as much. He's listed by his alias, Swain, but there's no mention of anyone being killed. Harden was simply charged with malicious mischief, fined $5, and kicked out of town. Interestingly enough, the article also mentions a deck of marked cards that the police confiscated from Wes, which could possibly explain why he was always getting into trouble when he was out gambling. Now, the main reason that Wes chose Pollard, Alabama as his hideout was due to his brother-in-law, Brown Bowen, already living there. Remember him? The murder and rapist who killed Tom Heldman while he was asleep? That guy? Yeah. In-laws, am I right? Well, it's this association with Brown Bowen that would ultimately lead to Harden's arrest. More on that in a moment, but it's worth noting that West didn't spend a whole hell of a lot of time with his wife and kids there in Alabama. He made an attempt at the logging business, but I guess that nightlife just kept pulling him back in. As such, Harden was constantly on the move, just traveling from one gambling town to another, both in Alabama and Florida, and oftentimes struggling to earn even enough to send back to his family. Little did he know that it would all soon be coming to an end. By 1877, a sergeant in the Texas Rangers by the name of John Barclay Armstrong got himself promoted to lieutenant. No stranger to violence, Armstrong had made several arrests during the Sutton-Taylor feud and showed additional pluck by apprehending the noted Texas gunman King Fisher. And following Armstrong's promotion, he set his sights on the fugitive John Wesley Harden. Assisting him in these endeavors was an officer from Dallas named Jack Duncan. Jack had previously worked for the Pinkertons and was appointed as a special ranger with one job and one job only, to help Lieutenant Armstrong catch Wes Harden. Using his expertise as a detective, Duncan was able to befriend Harden's father-in-law, Neil Bowen, over in Gonzales, long enough to intercept a letter to Neil from his son, Brown. The note, with a return address in Pollard, Alabama, included a message from Brown's sister sending her love. His sister, of course, being Harden's wife, Jane. Bingo! By June 20th, 1877, Armstrong and Duncan were in Montgomery a little over 100 miles northeast of Pollard, and had already ascertained that Hardin was going by the alias of John Swain. As such, they requested warrants in both names, just in case. 
Once again, Duncan went in first, undercover, and found out that Hardin was off gambling in Pensacola. The Rangers then enlisted the help of Escambia County Sheriff William Hutchinson and hatched a plan to catch Wes right there in Pensacola as he attempted to board the train back to Pollard. And sure enough, just as they hypothesized, Wes walked straight into the trap. According to Hardin, he had just stepped inside the train and was enjoying a pipe when two lawmen came up and grabbed him from behind. Wes began hollering up a storm, yelling out that he was being robbed, and one of his traveling companions, a 19-year-old Jim Mann, panicked, pulled out a gun, and began firing wildly. This was answered by Ranger Armstrong and the others as they shot back and killed Mann. Per Hardin, quote, In the meantime, I was fighting for liberty in the aisle with my three antagonists, who had been reinforced. They had me on my back, two or three men clinging to each arm, someone on my breast, and others trying to catch my legs which I was using with a vim. Once in a while, they would hit me over the head with a six-shooter as the unequal fight went on. I would not surrender or keep still. I swore I would never surrender at the point of a pistol, and I was not going to do it now. At this time, Armstrong rushed into the smoker with a drawn revolver and put it to my head and told me that if I did not surrender, he would blow my brains out. I said, blow away, you will never blow a more innocent man's out, or one that would cure less. Someone else was trying to strike me over the head with a revolver when Armstrong called out, Men, we've got him now. Don't hurt him. He is too brave to kill, and the first man that shoots him, I'll kill him. They finally bound my hands behind my back with a big cable and then tied me to the seat of the chair. I still had the stem of my pipe in my mouth, and someone picked up the bowl, filled it, lit it, and gave it to me to smoke. End quote. <laughs> That's pretty cool, but... I'm calling bullshit on Ranger Armstrong saying that Wes was too brave to kill. Remember, that's the exact same phrase that Hardin claimed Jack Helm used, and it's also very similar to the way Hickok allegedly spoke to him after that border roll incident. It's my amateur opinion that this was just Wes's ego at play. Years later, when writing his memoir, it was very important to Hardin to let the readers know that other dangerous men considered him brave. Other than that, though, Wes's version of the arrest is pretty accurate. Main difference being, instead of calling Hardin too brave to kill, Lieutenant Armstrong simply swung his heavy revolver against Wes's head and knocked him slap out. Matter of fact, Hardin was so slow in awakening that Armstrong was afraid he had killed him. While still asleep, they chained Wes's legs up and fished out the revolver he had concealed in his pants. There's an oft-repeated story stating that Hardin was attempting to pull his gun, but that he got hung up on his suspenders. And if it wasn't for that stroke of bad luck, he would have either escaped or gone down in a blaze of glory. Truth is, Hardin, for whatever reason, had looped his suspender strap through the pistol's trigger guard. Great way to conceal a weapon, but not exactly conducive for a fast draw. Oh, and by the way, Hardin had a third child by now, a daughter named Jenny. She was just a month old at the time of his arrest, and he wouldn't see her again for another 17 years. The Rangers arrived back in Austin with their famous prisoner on August 28, 1877, just three months following Hardin's 24th birthday. So numerous were the curious spectators surrounding the Travis County Jail that the lawmen had to bodily lift Wes up and carry him inside. A month later, Hardin was transferred 150 miles north to Comanche to stand trial. Normally, a sheriff or maybe even a deputy would handle such a job, but Wes was a special case. Not only was he heavily shackled from head to toe, but he was also escorted by an entire damn company of Texas Rangers. 
and this was not just to prevent him from escaping. The Rangers were also tasked with stopping any potential lynch mobs who might be planning on stringing Harden up. One of the Rangers would later recall that Harden, quote, deported himself with the utmost decorum, evincing no restlessness. Although his patience was sorely tried by the gaping crowds who gathered at noon and evening camps to stare at him in the face with a sense of curiosity that knows no delicacy. He was quite communicative, talking freely of his terrible adventures, expressing regrets for what he termed his errors and hopes for the future. He is what ladies would call a blonde, about 5 feet 10 inches high, wears his whiskers in the French style, and is fairly educated in English in the common school branches. He has been wounded in several places and suffered one old bullet wound on this trip hither. End quote. Now, the trial would begin on September 28th and last all of two days. Believe it or not, Hardin was only being tried for the murder of Deputy Charles Webb and not any of his other numerous killings. A reporter out of Weatherford noted that Hardin's demeanor was free and easy throughout the trial and that he was often smiling and chatting with the lawyers. This cheerful facade would not last. After three hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a guilty verdict, and John Wesley Hardin was sentenced to 25 years of hard labor at the Huntsville State Penitentiary. According to at least one paper, Hardin wept bitterly in his jail cell that night. But be that as it may, he still wasn't ready to call it quits just yet. Hoping for an appeal, West began a letter-writing campaign to various newspapers throughout the state. At one point, writing, quote, I have been compared to the beast of the forest, but, my dear readers, I am a human being, a native of the great state of Texas, and all I ask is law and justice, which I hope I will yet get, end quote. Now, I know what you're thinking, but you got to remember the central theme of this entire series. Hardin was never in the wrong. In his own mind, he was always justified. And ironically, that was kind of true when it came to him killing Deputy Webb. By most eyewitness accounts, Webb drew first. Hell, he was even able to nick Hardin with a bullet before being gunned down. Even though West was the aggressor, he was still technically defending himself by killing Webb. Had it been proven that West drew first and gunned down the deputy in cold blood, he'd have likely been sentenced to death. As it were, he was only convicted of second-degree manslaughter. The only thing that stopped him from getting acquitted outright was the evidence showing that he had previously conspired to kill Webb. To quote the late great Leon Metz, had there been no conspiracy issue in the death of Webb, the verdict almost certainly would have been an acquittal on the grounds of self-defense. So it was not the act of killing Webb that sent John Wesley Hardin to prison. The jury believed Hardin provoked the fight and that the conclusion was sufficient for second-degree murder. However, had there not been elements of self-defense on Hardin's part, the jury might have found first-degree murder, and John Wesley Hardin would have gotten the rope. End quote. For what it's worth, Hardin would, for the rest of his life, steadfastly maintain that Webb was there in Comanche with the express purpose of assassinating him, and that he was only acting to preserve his own life. Now, as West awaited the appeal that would never come, he spent a good year in the Travis County Jail with a whole lot weighing on his mind. Not only was he looking at some seriously hard time, but his father had passed away back in the summer of 1876. Also, Jane and the kids were still in Alabama. They didn't have the funds to return to Texas, and there wasn't a damn thing West could do about it from behind bars. It wasn't until February of 1878, five months after Hardin's sentence, that his family was able to scrap enough together to make the trip. 
Adding to all of this, his damn no good brother-in-law, Brown Bowen, had also been arrested. He was extradited to Texas, tried for the murder of Tom Heldman, found guilty, and sentenced to hang on May 17, 1878. Only thing is, Bowen began telling everybody who'd listened that it was Hardin, and not him, who murdered Heldman. He even took a page from West's book and began writing the papers, claiming his innocence. In one such letter, Brown addressed Hardin directly, saying, John, you know I am innocent of this deed. I ask you to clear my name for my children's sake. You know you have to appear before a God who knows all. And can you stand before that great tribunal and look on your God and say, I did not kill Heldman? You know you will have to say, I, John Hardin, did it and allowed Brown Bowen to be punished for it. My death will be another dreadful murder, which you will have to answer for. Damn. Even Brown's parents and sister begged Hardin to admit to the murder, but he wouldn't budge, telling his wife, quote, Let every tub stand on its own bottom. For your sake, I would do anything honorable. And I know that you would not ask me to do anything dishonorable, but I cannot be made a scapegoat of. A true statement will do your brother no good, and a false one I cannot make. In the end, Brown Bowen was hung by the neck till he was dead, dead, dead. A few days before the execution, an extremely on-edge John Wesley Harden nearly killed another inmate after the poor bastard made him wait too long in the chow line. Now, earlier in this series, I mentioned how West was just 17 years old when he met up with another young gunman by the name of Bill Longley. Well, Bill had also gotten himself arrested. And while he was sitting around in jail awaiting trial, he started telling all kinds of tall tales and drastically inflating the number of people he had killed. Make no mistake about it, Longley was a killer. But despite his jealousy, he was nowhere near at the level of John Wesley Harden. Thanks partly to all these lies he'd been telling, Longley was sentenced to hang for his crimes. He too filed an appeal, but it didn't work. What's more, he was flabbergasted to learn that Hardin had received life while he, Bill, was destined to swing at the end of a rope. Guess Longley didn't figure this was fair, so he did the same thing that Wes and Brown Bowen did and started writing letters to the papers, publicly insulting Hardin while he was doing so. It was like an Old West version of a modern-day internet beef, only instead of trash-talking each other on TikTok, they were hashing things out via the printed press. West wrote that he had never had anything to do with Bill Longley and that he only rode with men of honor, suggesting, of course, that honor was something Bill was greatly lacking. This prompted Longley to say that Hardin's victim, Charles Webb, was one of the best and bravest men in Texas and that if West was so tough, then why did he need so much help when dispatching Webb? Now, I did an entire episode on Longley if you're interested in learning more. Link down in the description. But eventually, the papers stopped reporting on the squabble altogether, so I guess they just got tired of arguing. A little while later, in a letter to his uncle, Hardin would write that he had recently received a very complimentary and sympathetic note from Longley. Whether or not this was sarcasm or a genuine statement on Wes's part, I do not know. In June 1878, Hardin's appeal would be formally denied. And by October 5th, he stepped through the gates of Huntsville Prison as convict number 7109. West wouldn't breathe air as a free man again for another 15 years, 8 months, and 12 days. And if you're curious to learn more, please join me next week as we continue with the life and times of John Wesley Harden. The man was only 25 years old when he got to prison, and he'd lived to the ripe old age of 42, so we still got a lot more ground to cover. And I can assure you that some of it is highly controversial. 
Also, if you'd like to learn more about Harden's life prior to the Sutton Taylor feud, please check out the two most recent episodes I did on Harden's early life. Links to both down below. Thank you so much for listening. Do me a favor. If you like what you hear, tell somebody about the Wild West extravaganza. And if you're looking to listen completely, 100% ad-free, head on over to intohistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. That's intohistory.com forward slash Wild West Extra. You'll not only gain access to every new episode of the Wild West Extravaganza Sans commercials, but you'll also be able to listen to them early, along with bonus content not available anywhere else. All right. Till next time, do me a favor. Try not to start any feuds, all right? Don't loop your damn suspender through your trigger guard, and whatever you do, do not name any of your kids Pitkin. Adios. Adios.